Welcome to Physics Twist, this week in science and technology, powered by Physics Education. Physics Twist is about the biggest, baddest and most awesome STEM stories from the past week and maybe a bit more. We are your hosts, Holly Kershaw and Duncan Bell, and this week we are joined by Quill, who is one of our science education officers here at Physics Education. Quill, tell me a bit about yourself. Okay, well my love of science started when I was a little kid, and I was trying to figure out why I didn't look like my mum or my dad, kind of some weird blend in the middle. So I went to uni and studied lots of different kinds of science, and then I travelled the world for a while, then I did a PhD, so technically you can call me Dr Quill. Which is very, very cool. Now, Quill, I hear that you have some awesome science that you want to talk to us about. I sure do. So... You've been fawning over fauna. I have. And I I may have slipped back into my old habits of loving animals and various biological things. So the first thing I wanted to talk to you about today is this really cool um, idea that just kind of came out. Now, this one came from a um, science paper. And this one is all about the fact that... These new scientists um, have made cells that glow so brightly that they can actually be seen outside of the body. So this is a really cool idea because up until now, the glowing idea behind cells and stuff is using microscopy to study kinds of diseases and how cells move around. But to do this, you either have to cut the thing open or take a slice of its tissue. None of these are great ideas. But um, recently, these scientists have been able to um, actually change the way that they make these glowing Um, bioluminescences and they have synthetically made them that they're a thousand times brighter than what they used to be so now you can actually see them from outside the body which means you can now look at stuff that's going on inside the brain without having to cut the brain into pieces that's really cool is it related to the way that certain animals especially in the deep sea glow sometimes yeah absolutely so this whole idea of bioluminescence and using it for imaging kind of started with um, the three guys that won the Nobel Prize back in 2008 And these guys did an awesome job of finding things like GFP, which is green fluorescence protein, which basically came from jellyfish and glows in the dark. We can now take these and use them for all different ideas um, and use them to do heaps of different kinds of cool stuff medically. Awesome. So previously what I would have seen was just stuff off um, Blue Planet, you know, the David Attenborough series? Of course. Uh, Of course, of course. (laughs) So this actually has applications in medicine. Do you have any idea what they might be? Yeah, for sure. So this one in particular, in this particular story, they're able to just feed mice um, a solution where the mice drink it and then their brains glow only in specific areas and they can monitor, say, their responses in their hippocampus to being moved or to certain stimuli. So the applications for this medically are just so much. Like cancer, you could trace things in people's bodies, all sorts of different things like that where you just can look at someone's body and target specific tissues or organs without having to cut them in pieces. Wow, so they literally glow from the outside. Yeah. That's crazy. Because I've seen before, you can you can do those those tracing things, but with a specific, I don't know what kind of chemical it is, but you have to see it on a, on a monitor. Yeah. But this is literally with your own eyes. Yeah, so you need to introduce um, some kind of, generally microscopy or some kind of camera to, to do it, um, <coughs> but you're not having to digest a radioactive dye or something like this. Yeah, right, awesome. Yeah. Does that have any sort of long-term effects on the animals? I would say not, given that these are synthetically derived molecules that actually model um, natural proteins from a body. So these would, if they're intake as as a water, they should just flush straight through the system if they're taken in as a, as a solution. 
Although they didn't go into the detail of that, so I'd have to look into that a bit more closely. Remains to be seen. It does remain does to be seen. seen. I think we'll be, seeing, we'll be saying that a lot on this podcast. <laughs> remains to be seen. But that was a pun and you missed it. Oh. Yeah! <laughs> you got to get the puns. Um, I see applications for things like birthday parties. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe here at Physics Education in the Year, I was going to say 2020, but that's really soon. It's not the distant future. Maybe in the year 2030, we'll be having birthday parties where people's faces are glowing and stuff like that. Yeah, that's very cool. That would be really, really awesome. Slime that you can eat that then glows inside of you. Yep. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> or maybe we could have some sort of like Jurassic Park type thing, except we're, you know, real animals, but all of them glow. <laughs> Real animals like dinosaurs. Yeah. I think we're on 20, 20, 20, Well, possibly dinosaurs, I would say, because, you know, they were cloned from, from DNA, which relates to something that we'll be talking about in this episode as well. Cool. So can you tell us about your next story you had in mind? Please, Quill. Absolutely. So this story I actually heard on the radio when I was driving home and this story um, was in the futurism.com website as well as the Triple J and it was really interesting because it was that Barbara Streisand actually has a clone of her dog. Well-known futurist, Barbara Streisand. Apparently so. But she's cloned her dog not once but twice. So she currently has two dogs that are clones of her previous dog. Amazing. Yeah. She could have a Fido and a Fido. That was a French joke. <laughs> you like that one? That's great. So what's so weird about this was I knew that we had cloned Dolly and that the cloning was all up and happening, but I didn't realize we were at the point where we could pay to clone our dogs and kind of get the same dog again. Mm. But then obviously you've also got this whole issue is just because you've cloned your dog doesn't mean that dog is then going to be exactly the same, right? Mm. Because it's a lot to do with environmental and you can bring up twins and they can be completely different. So just because it's genetically the same doesn't mean those two dogs are going to be the same. Yeah, the old nature versus nurture debate. How much, yeah. does, it, how much does it cost to actually um, clone your dog? Look, they didn't disclose the exact amount, but it was it was said to be between about fifty dollars to $100,000. It's actually not that bad. I mean, for someone like Barbara Streisand who yeah. has tens of millions of dollars. It's kind of just like a drop in the ocean. So it's... Yeah, I guess so. Although I feel like for $350, you can rescue a dog from pet rescue. And mm. it was bound to be like put down. So I feel like there's a lot better investment of that 100000 rather than trying to replicate your own dog again. Mm. Fair enough. Mm. And I, I think I saw with this one that it was $100,000 per attempt yes. at, cl at cloning the dog. Yeah. So it's not that you pay $100,000 and you know, out comes a brand new cloned dog. It's that they will attempt to do it, but it's not guaranteed at all. Exactly. So you can be spending a lot of money on that. I, th I think it was like uh, one third of attempts were successful. Is that right? I think it was about that. So yeah, so you've, you know, $100,000, you may or may not get an exact replica of your dog. Anyway, you only get about 99% of the exact genetic DNA from your dog. It always has a little bit that has to go on from uh, just from the process of taking a clone, putting it in new eggs and that kind of thing. So it's never going to be exactly the same. And anyway, the way that you bring it up might be a bit different because you're constantly expecting it to be your old dog. Wouldn't so. you be so disappointed you pay $100,000 and you just get this little awful yappy? <laughs> Look, as much as I say all this, if my dog died, I would probably pay it to get her back again. <laughs> yeah, that is very true. <laughs> cool. No, All I'm, right. getting, I'm getting sad about my dog now. Oh, I'm getting sad about your dog. I'm sad about my dog now. 
It's okay. 100 grand. Can I have 100 grand, Holly? I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why you're asking me. Company cloning Man. expenses. Yes. Put it on the receipts. Yeah, yeah okay. The ATO is going to be calling after this. Alright, so Duncan, I think you're going to tell us about some big things in science right mm, now. Yeah, some megafauna. That's right. So, let me ask you guys, how many, um, how many elephant types can you name? Two. What are they? The African and the Asian. Well, you are dead wrong, my friend. What about a mammoth? We are living in a, in a sphere of lies, as it Is turns out. Is a mammoth out. an elephant? Yeah, it's an elephant tid. But it's dead. What's an elephant tid? It's the elephant family. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. It's little? Isn't tids normally small things? No, it's the family. Oh. I don't know. Okay. Well, it's a big so it's, family. So it's, like, it's, it's like a subgroup of a mammal. I think so, yeah. Um, yeah, so it turns out there are many, 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 many more than two in the entire family, obviously. So you've got your African and your Asian elephants. Then you've got your mammoths and your mastodons. There's a few other types. I think in the study they named 11 or so in total. But what they've discovered is that there are actually three different species of elephant living on the earth today. They have figured out that it's actually the Asian elephant and then what's called the African bush elephant and the African forest elephant. Mm. Yeah, crazy. So they, how did they work this out that there's actually two different types? So they've essentially studied the genome of the elephant tid family and realized that there was a lot of interbreeding going on and something called gene, gene flow or gene transfer um, between these different types of elephants like the mastodon and um, the... Was it mammoth? So lots of gene transfer going on, and they also realise that there are that the African bush and African forest elephant are genetically dissimilar. There's enough separating those that their DNA that says that they are completely different, and they've actually been separate species for more than five hundred thousand years. Now they do interbreed; they're close enough to interbreed, but they are actually. Completely separate species, which I think is really, really that is interesting. really, really, yeah. really cool. No, um, none of us knew. Now, so, I was just going to ask, what is their interbred species then? Are these sterile? Like a lot of interbred species are between other things. They didn't talk about that in the study. I think it remains to be seen. Mm. Um, well, if they're still around, surely they wouldn't be sterile. They would still be producing. Hmm. But then, are they what bush forest elephants? Or something in between. Yeah, What's in between that's a really good question. But they're still elephants. That's true. It's like a, a staffy and a, and a pug. Well, I, I think what the study was saying was that throughout history, for the past several hundred thousand years that elephants have been around, there has been interbreeding. But now, for the past 500,000 years, those two species, African bush and African forest elephants, are actually separate. So yep. there might not be interbreeding going on between them, but in the past there have been, and that's what's causing this gene flow. So do they have any distinctly different features that we just never noticed before? Um, I don't think that they would have different features that we can see with our, with our own eyes, but in terms of what's actually in their genome, okay. it, is, it is different. Different enough to be called a different species, which I think is pretty cool. That so, is cool. Yeah, there you go. Three types of elephants. I have to, you have to rewrite the history books now. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. You've got to rewrite every textbook. Every Kids, single time. Next time you're in the library, go. Find a book on elephants and add Just in add big in. text up. Actually, no, don't do that. We'll get in a lot of trouble. Um, <laughs> we but, might need to update Wikipedia. Yeah, it's already been done. done. Can confirm it's already been done. Some, some kindly fellow, the very minute that that study come, came out, has rewritten the whole thing. I love Wikipedia. So, thanks to Keith. It's great. From Utah. Good work, Keith. <laughs>
Okay, so the last story I've got, which is really, really cool, is um, actually a study that came um, from the Queensland um, Museum. And this one is that they're recently using Australian birds to model the way that dinosaurs walked. Now, this is really awesome because I want you to visualize how they actually did these studies. Now, they take a bunch of birds, because as we know, birds are really closely related to dinosaurs. And they take a bunch of birds and they put them in what is called a purpose-built bird runway. And they have special motion sensor cameras and they have pressure touch sensor ground to measure how much force is coming from these birds. And they get the birds to run along these and study the way in which they move. Okay, and they're translating the way these birds move into the way that things like T-Rexes move. And one of the great things about this is they've taken a lot of really awesome and really kind of daggy and funny Australian birds. So, for example, the ibis, which we all know is like pretty common around the bins. The humble bin chicken. The bin chicken. The that's tip exactly turkey. Right. The tip turkey, it's got that great beak that can dip into the bin and get all your excess lunch. I've also um, seen it unzip school bags. Yeah, that's wow. amazing. Oh my god. It's literally like the raptors in Jurassic Park <laughs> opening doors. <Fantastic>. Yes. <laughs> Only school lunches is the way to go. Um, they also have the brush turkey, other various kinds of turkeys, quails, emus and ostriches in this study. So I just want you to picture for a minute just like running tracks with each of these birds lined up, ready to go with motion sensors and touch pads to analyze the way these birds run. My mind is on the emu, just quietly. Um, so I think this is fantastic because it's using a kind of simple idea and something we have now to look at and understand the kind of the way that these um, dinosaurs actually moved in the past. It is very cool. My favorite thing from this particular story is that they created a statistical model called the biomechanically informative regression derived statistical model um, and if you take the what's it called the acronym, acronym. for that it is birds, birds. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Fantastic. it's like someone came up with that joke beforehand and then said we've got to research this just to make sure it happens i mean a lot of good ideas come from a cool acronym yeah totally for sure <laughs> that's amazing but yeah i just love the idea of a, um, a t-rex running around like it's an ibis and getting into um, what are those giant bins called? The wheelie bin? The skip. Skip into a skip bin. Also, they figured out from this that the, um, the, when it was running at about 18 kilometers an hour, the length of their footsteps would be about four meters long. Yeah. Which is the length of, more than the length of a car. Yeah. That is crazy. So they developed these really cool kind of predictive models of what they can do from the birds and they apply these to the sizes and the masses of the actual dinosaurs. So they can get these really cool ideas just coming from what the birds do. But then they've also got these kind of disclaimers, which is important, obviously, we don't know 100%, which is that you've got to be a bit cautious about this because some birds have a different center of gravity. And if all your mass is in one place instead of another, it might throw off where your footsteps go. And I think that's great to apply that to dinosaurs when you think of like a T-Rex standing up with its little arms compared to a different kind of dinosaur. Very, very cool. Thank you, Quill. That's a wrap on Physics Twist for this week. Thank you for joining us and thank you to Quill for sharing your passion for science. We have to get you back another time for talking about your other scientific passions. I mean, we all know you love fermenting. Um, now, don't forget that you can meet the wonderful people of physics at your school, vacation care or birthday party. Check out what we do, just go to physicseducation.com.au. Also, if you feel like it, you can rate us on iTunes. It really helps us out. On an unrelated note, Duncan's favorite number is five. It is five.
We'll be back next week to Wax Scientific with another one of our friends. We'll see you then.